Our reading from God's holy word covers similar ground to what we were just singing. Our reading is Psalm 19. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. It rises from one end of the heaven, and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. The term providence is, strictly speaking, a philosophical term. What I mean by that is you will not find the word providence in the Bible. But you will find providence in the Bible. In fact, you'll find it all over the place. Providence is that phenomena where uh, nothing really comes to us by chance. It may appear that way to some, but it's really not by chance. We can talk about chance as uh, something we, we can think about, but Things come to us not by chance, but they come across God's desk. God sends what happens. God gives you your tomorrow. God gives you your circumstances. It's the, for Christians, comforting understanding that we are in God's hand and everything that happens has a purpose. There is a meaning in it because God has brought it to bear. Christians are not the only ones, though, who have noticed that random chance doesn't seem all that random. In fact, the concept of providence, though under different terms and presented in different ways, can show up in other world religions. I'm a professor of world religions. I teach world religions as an overview. And there's a number of world religions that have kind of caught on that things don't happen randomly, not really. There is something happening in the world, and it, it skews too far to truly be by chance. One of those world religions is even named after this insight. It is the world religion of Taoism, and Taoism is a world religion, and it's built around providence, really, because the term Tao to the Taoist means there is something causing all things to happen in creation, and it doesn't look random. Um, there's this force that's causing things to happen, and we're going to call it the Tao. Something is moving the world that is supernatural. 
But if you are a Taoist, this concept is not as comforting to you as the understanding of providence is to a Christian. <clears throat> to a Taoist, it's pretty obvious that there's something going on in the world. That somebody's driving the car, but the Taoist can't really say he knows where the car is going. He doesn't know what the meaning is in what's happening, but somebody does, something does. Something is bringing meaning, but he doesn't know what. And I'm not misrepresenting Taoism. The central religious text of the Taoist is the Tao Te Ching, which I am holding. And the very first chapter, very first paragraph of the Tao Te Ching reads, the Tao that we can comprehend is not the eternal and infinite Tao. The names that we give are not the eternal and infinite names. So the very first words of the Tao Te Ching is, something's happening in the world, and it's not by chance, but if we talk about it, we're not really talking about it. We can't really say what it is. We can't actually understand it. It's out there. We can perceive it. But whatever we say falls short, and we don't know where the car is going. And not only that, we really don't know who the driver is. There is only one reference to God in the entire Tao Te Ching, and it has to do with providence <coughs> in the form of the Tao. And it says, I do not know what gave birth to the Tao, but perhaps it even predates God. That's the one reference to God in the whole book. There is an assumption that there is a creator God. And in fact, interestingly, the Chinese refers not to God, that's a paraphrase, but to the three cosmic creators. Now, think about that for a second. But the writer of the Tao Te Ching says, did God bring providence about? I don't know. There's no way to know. Maybe providence is before God. Maybe God is affected by providence. It would be a very frightening way to live, in a way. You don't know where things are going. You're caught up in it. Somebody knows something's happening, but you're never going to know. Uh, what you really have to do is kind of go with the flow of it, not get run over by it. But is it good? Does it care? Are you specially cared for by it? Well, the Taoists would be able to tell you. On the other hand, the Christian believes that he can know. He is able to know who is driving the car. He is able to tell you who is behind what is happening. Why does the Christian believe that he has access to this? Well, it's because in Christianity, we know that providence does not predate God. We know that God predates providence because God told us so. God exists. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning God, it assumes God. And God is not really hiding God, from the very moment we encounter him in the Bible and in history, he's talking. In fact, God is talking before there's ever anyone to listen. In the creation, God speaks everything into being. He talks to nothing, and nothing obeys him and becomes something. That is how verbal, that is how communicative the actual God is. And in doing so, God becomes what philosophers call the ground of being. He is able to define everything else and give meaning to everything else. And so when God says a tree is a tree, it turns out it's a tree. In postmodern thought, a tree could be a cow, could be a boy, could be a blade of grass, could be the air, just depending upon what you think about it. But in Scripture, God spoke it into being, and in speaking it into being gives it meaning. So a tree is actually a tree, and God has spoken. And even after the fall of man, 
God still does a lot of talking. In chapter 4 of Genesis, God still, even after the fall, still appears to people and talks to them. Cain and Abel talk to God directly, and they're not surprised by that. Now, it's not a good conversation to have, but God shows up and talks to them, and he continues to do that until the end of chapter 4 of Genesis, and even after that, when people are now calling upon the name of the Lord, he's not walking with them in the cool of the day, God is still speaking, and that is the focus of really the entirety of Scripture, God is talking. If you look at Scripture and you look at where God is talking, you find out that God talks so much that he doesn't just have one book, he has two. God speaks to us by two books, says the Reformers. In the Belgic Confession, after the first article that says God exists and this is who he is, it turns to the issue of God talking to us, and this is what the next two very brief little chapters say. We know God. We know God. We are able to understand, perceive, and know God by two means. First, by the creation, preservation, and government of the universe, since that universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book, in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, namely God's eternal power and divinity, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict humans and leave them without excuse. Second, God makes himself known to us more clearly by his holy and divine word as much as we need in this life for God's glory and for our salvation. We confess that the word, this word of God was not sent nor delivered by human will, but that men and women moved by the Holy Spirit, that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You got a, got a liberal translation. Um, as Peter says, afterward, our God, with special care for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. God, with his own finger, wrote the two tablets of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. So the Taoist is out there going, I know something's happening, but I don't know what. The Christian says, I know, God's spoken when I look at creation, I recognize that there's a creator. And in that book, the book of creation, there are a couple of things that I can really kind of put my, my feet on and say, okay, I know that God is like this. The, the knowledge that you can get from that book, the Apostle Paul kind of sums up in Romans chapter 1, verses... 19 and 20 when he says this what may be known of God is manifest in them that is in people and men is manifest in them for God has shown it to them for since his creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says, you look around at creation, and there is a message there. Because it's created and has a ground of being, you can learn something from it. And he mentions two things. He mentions God's existence, effectively, because he says the Godhead. You look at the world and you realize this has to be made by someone. It's a universe of causality. Everything comes from something else. Uh, there has to be an uncaused cause. That's the way the situation works. You can't have a universe of causality unless you have something that's not caused to be the first cause. So Paul says God's Godhead is obvious. There, there's a God. And you see his power. 
The Westminster and the Savoy Declaration add two other things to that. They add his wisdom and his goodness, and they borrow those two things from other passages of Scripture. Uh, When you look at creation, you know that God is, you know that he has the power to make it, and it works so well, there's no gaps in it, there's no dangling parts to it, it all works like a a well-run machine, you can see that God is wise. God knows what he's doing. He has a plan, a purpose. Uh, Everything that wisdom is, well, the creator has to be because that's the way the creation works. And you can see his goodness. And again, scripture in other places says you see God's goodness from his creation. But this is also fairly self-evidently true. If you didn't have a grounded being, if you didn't have a creator, you wouldn't actually be able to say anything is good because you'd never be able to define it. You would have no ability to compare good and evil and say this is good and this is bad. So in the book of nature, God is talking and you get those things about him. But one of the things you don't get about him is um, what requirements he has for you to really know him in any way, on any personal level. He's powerful, he's wise, he's good, but what does he want from you? And it's rather shocking to you because you realize you're not in fellowship with him. Since Genesis chapter 4, you've been having to call in the name of the Lord, he's not walking with you in the cold of the day, Uh, How you fix that, the book of nature doesn't really tell you. And it also doesn't tell you anything of the concept of divine grace and mercy. There may be a creator, and he may be speaking his creation, but and he's good. But does he have any room, any way, to invite people who aren't good to come fellowship with him. Is he the sort of God that will do that? Well, the world won't show you that at all. And so you have to have a second book, and that second book is the divinely inspired scripture that really talks about those two things. It talks about what is God's requirement for men, and will God even let flawed people like us into his good presence? And that's the Bible. Our psalm today, if you haven't already noticed, is broken down according to those two books. David is considering how does God talk to us? How does God make us know what's going on in the universe, make us know him? Well, in verse 1 through 6, David takes on book 1. He takes on the book of creation. And this is his walkthroughs of it. The heavens declare the glory of God. And how could they not? If you look up at the heavens and you understand even infinitesimally how utterly vast and varied and awesome those heavens are, their expanse, their creation, their wisdom, uh, if you even have a, a small understanding of what all that is, uh, any, anyone who created that is glorious. Anyone who created that is beyond awesome. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Firmament, something firm, You're standing or sitting on something firm. It's the world. Gravity is pulling you down to the firmament. You live your life here and not in the heavens. But as you look around this, which is so much smaller, nevertheless, everything around you is testifying. There is a God. He is wise. He is good. He is all-powerful. It's testifying night and day to you that God is God. In fact, day to day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. He's talking about the way creation moves in time. 
There's no scenes in it. There's no place where time buckles. There's no place where just for a moment gravity doesn't work. There's no place where time and space kind of mess up. As day runs into day and night runs into night, the perfect working of the natural laws which God has made testifies to his wisdom, his goodness, his being, all of these things, moment by moment, day by day, as it grows night, as it grows day, the voice of creation is speaking about who God is. In fact, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That's talking about human culture. There is no group of people who are talking right now anywhere on the earth where their language doesn't include language for talking about God and what he does. Did you know that in all of time and in every place on earth where a human society has been found, whether it exists right now or it's dug out of the earth, it's something archaeological, there has never been a human people group that lacked an understanding of the supernatural. Not a one in all time and space. When I was in high school, when I was in uh, history class, the professor brought in a BBC documentary for us to watch. It turns out that what I just told you wasn't true. That in northern Luzon in the Philippines, there had been found a Stone Age tribe that had escaped notice by the modern world. And it turns out this small village of Stone Age people had a culture and language that had no concept of God or the divine at all. It was a remarkable discovery. Uh, archaeologists and, and anthropologists and sociologists descended on the village. It was, a, uh, it was unheard of. Here's a people group that don't have any idea about life after death or a divine creator or supernatural events. We watched the film, and then the professor said, what did you think of that? And we talked for a while about that. And then he said, what would you feel if I told you it was all a fake? Because it was. It had fooled the BBC long enough to make a documentary. But when you take actors out into the jungle and literally set up a village for people to, quote, discover, because you are in conflict with the Roman Catholic Church, who has too much power in your country, and you want to undercut their power by demonstrating there are people that have no knowledge of God, this ruse falls apart kind of quickly. And that's exactly what had happened. The Marcos regime, in attempting to undercut the power of Roman Catholicism, literally invented a village, sent actors out into to the jungle, and they portrayed Stone Age people who didn't know God. But you can imagine, if you have 100 people in this ruse, how long is it going to last? Not real long, and it fell apart. There has literally never been a language of man that has lacked an understanding of God and the supernatural. Not a one, nowhere, no time. And David says, look, the, the book of nature is testifying to man. He can't miss it. There has never been an atheistic society, man talks religion. Their line has gone out throughout all the earth. There's no place this doesn't happen. And their words to the ends of the world. Then David points up to the sun and he says, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It comes out, and it goes all around the earth. It runs like a joyful man to run its race, and sends light down upon the earth. Um, do you have any idea how long we would survive if the sun went out? Eight minutes. The sun is eight light minutes away. And if the sun went out, we would suddenly freeze to a, a crisp. We would, would, everything would go cold beyond anything you can imagine. The sun runs around the earth and provides life and light for us. 
We can't survive without it, but it literally goes everywhere, and it brings with it a joy and an enlightenment. The eyes of the sun are literally everywhere, and it's life, giving light is everywhere at the appropriate time. It's almost like that's a perfect symbol for maybe the creator who's made everything that happens, that runs in perfect order and gives life and light. David points out, look, you cannot miss the fingerprints of the divine creator. It is there, it's in the sun, it's in everything you see. God is. It has only been in the last 150 years of all human history that atheism has been considered a intellectually viable position. For most of human history, while you have had atheists in every generation, you've had atheists in every culture, the general belief among all mankind was that doesn't logically make any sense. You, you have a belief that isn't founded on anything. And nothing has really changed. It's just atheists have claimed more honor, but it's not there. It's just not intellectually viable to believe there's no creator. But that's where you would be if you only had that one book. So David begins, again, in the Psalms, and there is this really quick break between the two, but there's not a break. David is talking about how God speaks to us, and the moment he gets done with book one, he turns to book two. God has inspired apostles and prophets, and this book says more. Beginning in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law is God's declaration of what is holy, righteous, and good, to quote Paul. It is those requirements that I mentioned. God steps forward and says, this is what I want out of people. This is what I want them to look like. And this, quote, converts the soul, which as a Protestant should make you have the hair on the back of your neck stand up, because that doesn't sound like what we usually talk about. We say there's no salvation in the law, and we're right. So when the psalm says the law of the Lord is perfect, it converts the soul, how does that work? Well, you can't be saved by the law, but... Is there any driving you to a Savior if you don't know you have a need? If you think you and God haven't quarreled, if you look at yourself and say, I'm my most severe critic and I think I'm pretty good, is there going to be any fear of God, any desire to come into reconciliation with him, anything to motivate you to seek salvation? The answer is no. For that to take place, the law of God has to tell you, you think you're good, but guess what? You're not in a million, million ways. And when the law gets done with you, it drives you to Christ. And that's what David's talking about. Um, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What is a testimony? Well, it's when God says a tree is a tree. When God says... Murder is bad. When God says it harms righteousness if you steal your brother's wife, uh, it, it's good that you honor your father and mother and you don't cannibalize them. I realize that seems a little extreme, but there are people in the world who don't know that. A testimony is God saying an apple is an apple. What is, is. And without God... You don't know what is, but David celebrates the word of God, saying, in the word of God, you have God's testimony about what things are, and the testimony makes wise the simple, and it's sure. It means what God says is really is, that you can take the bank. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The term statute can take into itself the concept of natural law, and it's bigger than the law of the Lord. But it also includes the law of the Lord, which we've already looked at. 
And David now considers God's moral requirements, and he says, if, if you are of a right mind, you should see these requirements and actually be happy about them. They should rejoice your heart. Several years ago, Paul Prather, who I don't really recommend to you, he was religious writer for the Lexington Herald Leader, and he's on really the left side of everything. But years ago, he had a series on the Ten Commandments, which actually pretty decent. Prather approached the law of God, and he demonstrated how all of the Ten Commandments are really kind of required for you to be able to live in a society and not have to lock yourself in your house with a pickaxe to guard yourself against outside looters. Basically, all of human relationships are based on a relation of trust. And if you lived in a society where the Ten Commandments were totally off the table, what would it be like to live in that society? You cannot guarantee that your neighbor won't murder you, and there's no consequences if he does. You cannot guarantee that your neighbors won't gang up and take all your stuff. You can't guarantee that anyone will hold anyone accountable for speaking the truth. Uh, what kind of world would that be? We would all be in our houses with guns, hiding, hoping that nobody comes and kills us. But David looks at the word of the Lord again. He looks at the law, and he says, these should really rejoice your heart. It gives you an opportunity to live in something other than that incredibly tooth and claw type of environment, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So the word of God tells us that uh, God wants us to do this. It gives us wisdom. When we do it, we find wisdom. I hear a kind of echo of Jesus saying, if you do the teaching, you will know if it is from God. That's in the Gospel of John. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. All of this leads to, quote, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. You may find an awe and a sense of wonder at the Creator in book one, but you really won't know him and have a proper fear of him, a godly good fear of him, unless you come to book two. Book two strikes you in your soul because of his holiness, his righteousness, his wisdom, his goodness. Uh, it brings an awe that is beyond awe, the kind of awe that a citizen of the divine kingdom should have of the divine king. Um, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here David turns to the fact that God is doing things on the earth and it may be slow, a lot slower than we want it to be, but God does bring his judgments to bear on the earth, and wickedness is suppressed. Wickedness is punished. God is doing that, and when he does it, it is true and altogether righteous. More to be desired are they, these things you find in book two. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Money's fleeting. And if you're stupid uh, and somebody puts a million dollars in your hand, they might as well have put a loaded gun in your hand because it's going to be about the same result. Uh, but if you have book two in your hand, if God brings that to bear on you, that's far better than if God gave you money. Amazingly better. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Why is it better and sweeter? Well, moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So those things in book one that we couldn't find, what does God require of us, and is God gracious, and is there a way to come into that grace? David approaches that here and says, I'm warned. God shows me those things that I need to know that I might be reconciled to my creator. Uh, carrot and stick. I'm warned by what happens if I don't, and there's lots of blessings if I do. And this causes David to look at himself and say, who can understand his errors? 
cleanse me from secret faults. Turns out I'm not as good as I thought I was. Uh, turns out I'm filled with sin and depravity, and this second book really shows it. So, Lord, help me with that. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, because quite frankly, occasionally I rebel against God, even though I know. Um, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So unlike the Taoist, the Christian can know God. He can know God in creation beyond what the Taoist is seeing, and he can know God way better because the second book is out there and tells you who God is and what he wants. In fact, God has been talking so much and so loudly one has to ask the question, why is the world filled with functional Taoism? Now, only a small percentage of the human race would say, I'm a Taoist. But when you begin to speak with human beings everywhere, in every culture, and you talk about these kind of things, and you ask them, does everything happen for a reason? How many unsaved, unspiritual people will say, oh, I totally believe things happen for a reason. I, I don't think things are random. I think there's something happening in the universe. I think there's something spiritual out there. Do you know what it is? No. But somebody does. Somebody has to. I'm sure everything happens for a reason. <clears throat> Right? I mean, isn't that the average person? So really, without calling themselves Dallas, most people are Dallas. Why is that? Because God has been talking. God has been talking. Book one is talking to everyone. Book two is talking to anybody who picks it up and reads it. So why is humanity kind of at that level? In the men's Bible study this week, we looked at Paul's defense when he was nearly beaten half to death when the Jews grabbed him at the temple, and uh, they nearly killed him. The Romans came in, took Paul. Ultimately, the Romans let Paul make a defense on the steps of the temple, and this is his defense. Paul is talking to Jews who are at the temple of God, right? What is the temple of God? Well... It's that physical place where in the Hebrew scriptures, everything that book two talks about is supposed to happen. In the temple, you have all that architecture that points to God and is sacramental. Uh, the temple is where you make vows. The temple is where the, the Shekinah glory is supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. Everything about this building really is kind of dedicated to book two. And these Jews, these religious people, have come to the temple because of book two, but they've nearly killed Christ's apostle, and this is what Christ's apostle says to them. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. So he references book two. Uh, I was brought up in this town, which has the temple, and I had a very strict approach to it. And was zealous towards God, as you all are today, you people who tried to kill me and actually hate Jesus. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to punish. Now it happened, as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around him. So there's this supernatural light, and Paul hadn't seen it before, but God hits Paul with light. 
and in fact even knocks him off his, his horse. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, if you go back to chapter 9 in Acts, where this is put forward as the event happening, Luke, who wrote this, writes, they, uh, they, they, did not hear the voice as opposed to this. No, it was they heard the voice as opposed to hear. They did not hear the voice. Uh, how can somebody hear and not hear? Is that, an, is that a contradiction in the Bible? Or is Luke telling us something about hearing? They heard, but they didn't hear. And there's a light, but it just causes them to be afraid. They don't really see anything. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all things which you are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. <clears throat> then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at the same hour, I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will. So now he's talking to people who are coming to the temple to do religious things, who are hearing the Hebrew Bible all the time, but they're not seeing, they're not hearing, they're in darkness even though God is speaking to them all the time, all around them. But God has chosen Saul, chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. If you look back again, if you compare this to chapter 9, in chapter 9, we're told about the light, but we're just told about it once, and it's not emphasized. But in Paul's testimony, he emphasizes again and again, the light hit me. I saw, I heard the voice. I didn't hear it before, but I hear it now. God has chosen that I really hear. I wasn't able to hear. Picture, if you will, the most eloquent speaker that you can imagine. His voice is resonant and pure. Uh, it is delightful to hear. And he is giving a wonderful oratory to a room of a hundred people, and the acoustics in the room are perfect. They are designed to carry the voice greatly. Now picture that his entire audience is deaf. How effective is the speaker? Oh, he's fantastic, just nobody knows. He's communicating perfectly, it's just nobody hears. God is speaking, God is shouting, the creation is testifying to him, the Bible is the most published and translated book in all of human history, God is the greatest of orators, and without something further than this, we are deaf. We are absolutely unable to hear. And Paul is bringing that up in his testimony. I was totally deaf. I was totally blind. He had to open my eyes. He had to open my ears. Then I heard the testimony. Which brings us to the question, uh, where is Christ in our psalm? Because that's how we end when we preach on the psalms. Uh, every psalm talks about Jesus of Nazareth. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the psalm. Jesus is what? He's many things, but one of the things that the gospel emphasizes, he is the word of God. 
God speaks in nature, God speaks in the Bible, but when God really wants to get as close to us deaf men as possible and talk, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is among us. The creation points to him. Every truth in Scripture points to him. He is the embodiment of every truth that Scripture teaches. He is an even more intimate word than the words we've been given. And more than that, he's the message of the books. Books are written about things. When God created the world and said, I'm going to make it a book, I'm going to make it talk about something, it's not random words. It's not the language of a madman. It has a point. It has a purpose. Everything in creation if we hear it rightly, is teaching about God in Christ. Everything. In Calvin's instruction on faith, which is his first writing before he did uh, the final copy of his Institutes, in one of the earliest chapters, Calvin says, if we had eyes to see it, we would not be able to look anywhere in creation without seeing a message about God in Christ. Everything would be crying out about it. Absolutely everything. And it is. It's just we don't have eyes to see it. Creation testifies to Jesus Christ. When he rode into Jerusalem and the kids were worshiping him and the Pharisees say, why don't you make him shut up? When Jesus says, if I do that, the rocks will cry out, it wasn't hyperbole. The rocks were crying about Christ anyway. All of creation testifies to him. All of the Bible testifies to Jesus. If you don't get that, you don't get the message. And more than that, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, which means if there is more that must happen for you to hear the books, well, if all authority is given to Christ, who decides if you hear the books? If we turn to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has just given that very famous parable of the, the, the sower, you know, the, the four kinds of fields, the seed, the seed goes out, it comes up in different ways. One of the most famous passages of Scripture, um, once he was done talking, the disciples said, we don't have any idea what he said, let's go find out what that meant. And we take that story up in specifically verse 10. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. So this has been given to you. You are going to be able to know this. You're going to be able to hear this. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now, usually when a preacher preaches on the parables and he wants to emphasize why Jesus used parables, he will say, and there is some truth to this, Jesus taught in parables because it was very picturesque and he could really get his message across by imagery, and God is the creator, so creation actually does testify this way. He's not just making it up. Uh, he's doing it so you'll understand better, is usually what you hear. And that's not totally wrong. But Jesus here, read it again if you have to, Jesus says, now it's been given to you, my disciples, that you might know and understand, but to those outside it's spoken in parables so that they won't see, so that they won't perceive. I could be more clear, and I'm not. And I'm quoting Isaiah about it. Isaiah the prophet testified that the light would not be given to some that the books would not be open to some. 
This is one of the most quoted passages of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. It is quoted in Matthew 13, 14, and 15. It is quoted in Luke 8, verse 12. It is quoted at the end of the book of Acts in 28, verse 26 through 27. It is quoted in Romans 11, verse 8. And for our purposes, we are going to look at it more intimately, being quoted in John chapter 12, verse 37 to 41. Beginning of verse 37, John says this, Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He, which is a reference to God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory, referencing Jesus, and spoke of him. God is shouting, and in all the language of mankind, there's a certain understanding that God is out there. There's an understanding that things don't happen randomly. But the, the highest religious minds in Taoism come up to, there's no possible way we can really understand this, but it's happening. That's where the grand majority of humanity is. Christians say we can know God and what is happening we know it is happening in Jesus Christ and that God is gracious in Christ. And the rest of the world looks at us and says, how can you be so arrogant to say you know? How can you join David in celebrating the knowledge of God that God has revealed? How can you say that God is knowable? God makes himself known to those he chooses. He opens the books. The scales fall from the reader's eyes. The reader has always seen the books, but he has never seen the books. And all authority is given to Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth. Thanks be to God. <clears throat>